You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Well, good morning, and Merry Christmas to you. If you would please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Well, as it always amazes me, never ceases to amaze me, I guess I could say it that way. As we just make our way through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, we come to a text this morning that could not be more appropriate for the fact that we're gathered together on Christmas morning. Matthew chapter 16, look at verse 13, we'll read to verse 17 this morning. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Let's ask our God's blessing on this time in His Word this morning. Father in heaven, thank you for the joy it is not only to celebrate the birth of our Savior, to celebrate our very life that is found in Him, But on this Christmas morning, we have the joy of celebrating together on the Lord's Day and in the Lord's household with brothers and sisters. We give you praise and thanks for this unique joy that we know today. And Lord, as we have had the privilege to sing your praises, so now we have the privilege to open your word together. We ask that you would be our teacher. Would you be at work, both in the act of preaching and in our listening? Would you direct our minds and hearts to you, to your Son, to the truth? May this morning be an edification, a blessing for your church, but also, Lord, for anyone hearing me today who doesn't yet know Jesus, we pray that this might be the day of salvation, that this would be the day when it would dawn on them by your grace, their true need and the true solution, that they would turn from their sins and trust in your Son for life. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't yet looked up the pattern, Christmas falls on a Sunday every 11, 6, 5, and 6 years. Which means that the next time we will gather on a Christmas Sunday, if the Lord tarries and if we all live, it will be the year 2033. 11 years from now. Now let that sink in for a moment. How much will have changed in the next 11 years? The next time we have opportunity to gather together on the Lord's Day on a Christmas morning, 11 years will have passed. So those of you who've had the joy recently of a new baby, you're holding that newborn or very young child in your arms this morning, just think about it. The next time we do this, your child will be 11 years old. That aging parent that we are enjoying in their 70s or 80s or 90s, 
the next time we do this, they might not be with us. So appreciate them and take joy in them today. Each of us can move our age up by a decade. So if you are 30, you'll be 40. 41 actually, but who's counting? And someone like me right at the doorstep of 60, not there yet, but I'll be 70. Time doesn't stop, does it? The Bible is not exaggerating when it describes our lifespans like a breath. We're here and then we're not. And it doesn't take long for those two things to happen. So a lot will have changed 11 years from today if the Lord tarries, if we live. But one thing will not have changed the next time we meet on Christmas. Today, most of the world is celebrating the birth of someone they don't know. All over this country, this morning people are celebrating. Most of them don't know Jesus. Celebrating His birth, but they don't know Him. Most people are celebrating someone they don't understand. Most people are celebrating the birth of someone without considering the rest of His life. Who He was, who He is, why He came into the world, what He came to accomplish, what He did accomplish. Most people are not thinking about the fact that they're celebrating the one who will determine their everlasting destiny. Either they will meet Him one day as the one who has saved them, or they will meet Him one day as their judge. Imagine celebrating today the birth of your judge who will sentence you to hell because you refuse to trust in His name. What else will not have changed 11 years from today is the fact that there's only one correct answer to the question that Jesus poses in our text. Verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 15, but who do you say that I am? There's only one correct answer to that question, and Peter gives it. In verse 16, when he answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the right answer. And that's what I want us to think about together this morning in our time in God's Word. I want us to think about the most important question that anyone in this world has to consider and the singular answer to that question that is, in fact, true. We'll look at this text under four headings. The first one is this. I want you to notice the most important question the world will ever answer. You see it in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? The first thing that Matthew tells us is where Jesus has arrived with His disciples. They have come into the district of Caesarea Philippi. And if you look at that on a map, you're going to see that they have moved far north, right at Mount Hermon. 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee, 40 miles southwest of Damascus. Why are they there? Well, it would have been a cooler region, therefore a more restful region. It seems that our Lord has been seeking a time of rest for Himself and His disciples. He is away from the crowds who don't really understand Him. He's away from the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees who are increasingly hostile toward Him. 
away from Herod Antipas, who has already proven to be a very dangerous man in the case of John the Baptist. Whether it's intended or not, it also serves sort of symbolically as a reminder regarding the question that Jesus poses. Because you could say that they are as far north as you can go and still be in what was considered the promised land. From a northern perspective, this is where the land of Israel meets with paganism, with the rest of the world. This is where the world of the Jew meets with the world of the Gentile. And so right there at sort of the nexus of humanity as the Bible views it, the Jew and the Gentile, the Jew and the rest of the world, at the farthest point of the promised land and where it meets with the rest of the world, the question is posed, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Nothing has changed about the importance of that question. If you live in a country like ours that has been heavily influenced by Christianity, this is the most important question. Who was and who is Jesus of Nazareth? Or if you lived in a country that was almost completely absent the influence of Christianity, it is still the most important question anyone can ask because the Bible reveals He's the only Savior given for the world. In some places, people have grown up hearing a Christian view, at least a nominally Christian view of who Jesus was and is. In other places, they have grown up hearing a pagan view of who Jesus was. But when you consider the fact that today the world is celebrating the birth of this one, and when you consider the fact that His name is mentioned in most of the world's religions, even the New Age movement has at times taken the name of Jesus to achieve this or that. When you consider the worldwide impact of this one's life, is there any more important question than this? Who do people say that Jesus of Nazareth was? And we would say, who He is. Secondly, I want you to notice, that's the most important question anyone could ever ask. The second thing I want you to notice is the natural answers that will doom the soul. The natural answers that will doom the soul. The disciples have an answer for his question. And they said, verse 14, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. They've heard talk among the crowds as to the more popular views regarding who Jesus was. Probably true to say the disciples would have heard more of that than Jesus would have. Usually if we're talking about someone, we're not talking to that person. We're talking about that person. And so it's not odd at all that the disciples would hear more of the talk about Jesus than Jesus would hear. But the Lord is not asking this question because of ignorance, and He's not asking this question because of curiosity. Our Lord had a perfect understanding of how the natural man perceived Him. Once again, He's doing what He does to teach. He's doing what He does to set the stage for the great confession that's about to follow and lessons He wants to teach about that confession. But nonetheless, the answers that the disciples offer 
are telling and they're timeless. I would offer this morning that really the answers haven't changed a lot. The question is, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, right? he's going to ask the disciples in a moment, but who do you say that I am? But if you're not one of his disciples, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, then how do you view him? Who is he to you? If you're not a follower of Christ, then how do you explain him? What are the more popular answers when it comes to the attempt to explain this most powerful, influential figure? What do you say about him? Several things I want you to note about the disciples' report. First of all, the answers are wrong. The answers that they offer are all wrong. Some say John the Baptist. Well, that's not right. Others, Elijah. Well, that's not right. Others, Jeremiah. Well, that's not right. One of the prophets. That's not right. All of the answers are wrong. And you'll notice two glaring omissions that you're going to hear in a moment from Peter's mouth. The disciples don't say, some say the Messiah. Some say the Son of God. Because again, the question is not, who do believers say that I am? What do the unbelievers say about me? Who am I according to them? So there's only one right view of Jesus. Any other view is wrong. The answers they give are a mixture. This is the second thing I would note about their answers. They reflect a variety of perspectives. In fact, we can categorize these. Some people saw Jesus in a way that we could say misunderstood Scripture. They're trying to view Him through the lens of Scripture, but their application of Scripture is wrong. They have misidentified Him trying to use Scripture for their lens. Why would anyone say that He's Elijah, for example? Some say, you're Elijah. Why would someone say that? Well, because Malachi 4.5 said... Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so they're recognizing things are happening that the world has never seen before, these tremendous signs and miracles. What does this mean? Does this point to the day of the Lord? And if it does, then who are you in this particular season that we're living in and witnessing? Who are you? Could it be that you're the Elijah that Malachi spoke of? Well, no, he's not, but what have they done? They've misunderstood and misapplied Scripture. Some of this represents mysticism, superstition. Why would someone say John the Baptist? I mean, John the Baptist lived. We knew him. We saw him. We heard him. Why would we say that Jesus is John the Baptist? You'll remember that Herod said this. He was afraid that John had returned somehow in Jesus, that somehow Something about the spirit of John has come upon this one. I don't know exactly how he worked it out in his head, but I know this, whatever it was, wasn't founded in reality. Superstition, mysticism, trying to understand Jesus through the lens of human superstition. Some of this reflected extra-biblical tradition. So not the Bible, but not just mysticism either, traditions that have grown up outside the Bible. Some say he's Jeremiah. Why would that come up? Why would someone mention Jeremiah? Commentators point to a reference in 2 Maccabees where there's the mention of Jeremiah returning at the time of Messiah. 
And so apparently these traditions had grown up, again, not based in Scripture, just ideas, traditional ideas about what it might be like when the end of the age arrives. And then some of what they said reflected common beliefs about any powerful figure. Maybe he's one of the prophets. Maybe he's one more in the line of these powerful men that God has used throughout the ages. Maybe he's just a prophet. Various categories reflected in the answer. Variety reflected in the answer. And I say this is timeless. This hasn't changed. If a person is natural, that is, if they haven't experienced the new birth, if they have not been regenerated, they are spiritually blind. And so when they attempt to assess Jesus of Nazareth with a fallen mind, with a fallen understanding, the light of who He really is has not shined in. They can't see. Therefore, whatever answers they give, it's like people groping about in the dark, trying to take hold of something substantive. And so it's just vain, empty speculation. What are the common views about Jesus today? If someone asks you, what do people say about Him? Who is He according to the world? Well, you have religious views of Jesus that are erroneous, insufficient, damning. I mean, if you hold these views, if this is really your view of Him, you don't have eternal life. Some would say He was a prophet, just a prophet. Some would say He was a good man, a worshiper of God who showed us how to live a life of true love. Some would say He was a Son of God, a Son of God, in the sense of being a created being who held the highest place among God's creatures. All of those answers are wrong. They're not new. They're as old as not only this text, but you go on into the book of Acts and into the New Testament letters and you find that this is what the church is battling with in the very first century. Distorted views of Jesus. 1 John 2.22 says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus, right, Jesus of Nazareth, the man Jesus, he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. You can't get Jesus wrong and get God right. You deny the Son, you deny the Father. No one, verse 23, who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You can't know God without knowing Jesus rightly. 1 John 4, 2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. As you know, you don't have full-blown Gnosticism this early on as John is writing that letter, but you have that Gnosticism that would come into full bloom later at its beginning stages. And already there's a distortion of Jesus that would say that either what you had was sort of a phantom, He wasn't really human, or you had a mere man that the Christ Spirit came upon him at his baptism, left him at his crucifixion. Yet all these wild, demonic doctrines concerning the Son of God, 
And already the Spirit of God through John is having to battle this. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That is, if they get the incarnation right, then those words at least reflect the truth given by the Spirit of God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Already doing battle with this distortion of the incarnation. This is why ancient creeds concerning the true nature of Jesus were critical. You find such a confession in 1 Timothy 3.16. It says, And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness, He who was revealed in the flesh. You have the eternal Son of God from all eternity, God, never a time when He wasn't God, but He took to Himself in time through a virgin birth, a true human nature. He was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the Spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Is that your Jesus? Because if that's not your Jesus... You don't know Jesus, and you don't have God. You're still in your sins. So to this day, you have religious views of Jesus that are distorted, all of them involving a distortion of Scripture. I want you to mark this down in your thinking. The doctrines of demons do not avoid the Bible. They hijack the Bible. This is what demons do. They distort the Bible. And they distort the truth about the nature of the Son of God, of Jesus. In fact, it shouldn't surprise us, should it, that when you look at the very first temptation of Christ recorded in Matthew 4, his temptation in the wilderness, what do you have? You have the devil coming to the Lord Jesus, distorting the truth about his nature by distorting Scripture. Look at Matthew 4 real quickly so you can see it with your eyes. Matthew 4, and look at verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, here's how our Lord answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What is this? An attack on the truth about the nature of Jesus, if you are the Son of God. Well, indeed He is. And He is the King of the universe and has no need for the devil to give it to him. There's an attack on his true nature, and it involves 
the distortion of the Word of God. And so, when you have people saying, He is a God, little g, and the Jehovah's Witnesses show up at your door and want to bring a slew of Bible verses that they think prove their point, when the Mormons want to say He's one of many gods and the brother of Lucifer and have their verses they want to offer along with their extra-biblical authority, the Book of Mormon and others, just know what the source of it is. It's as old as Satan's temptation in Matthew chapter 4. It is an attack on the true nature of Jesus and it distorts Scripture to make the attack. You're meeting with a human being, but what's coming out of the mouth is simply the doctrines of demons. So you have religious views of Jesus that are erroneous. You have a distortion of Scripture as a result. You also have views of Jesus to our day that are mystical. To think that Jesus is John the Baptist has no support in the Word of God. This is superstition. And to this day, on this day, when Jesus is celebrated throughout the world, the birth of Jesus, there are still superstitious views of Jesus. There is a superstitious Jesus, one who does not really exist except in the minds of those who have created their view of Him. A Jesus who exists to make everybody healthy and wealthy. You don't find that Jesus in the Bible. A Jesus who exists to promote the champion in you, to help you find the greatness that is there. You know, we sang this morning, as far as the curse is found. You understand, we live in a world under a curse. You and I were born into this world, children deserving of wrath. There was no greatness in me, except great sin. I didn't need a life coach. I needed a deliverer needed a Savior. And so if your Jesus is the Jesus, the life coach, you've got a false Jesus. The Jesus who exists to take your words and produce the realities that you bring into being with your words. You know that view, that Jesus somehow, we walk with Him and we know Him, and then our words have creative power in them, and we want to speak what will one day be manifested. And so all these views... We could mention others. The Jesus who would affirm the LGBTQ agenda, that Jesus is mythology. He doesn't exist. But the world celebrates such a Jesus. I told you a few weeks ago about the person who said, if Jesus were here today, he would lead the gay pride parade. Where does this Jesus exist? Not in the Word of God, but in the minds of deceived people who have taken in the doctrines of demons. Then you have views of Jesus that are common to any powerful figure. Some would say, yes, we agree, this person really lived, and yes, he's had an influence on the world, but so have others. I mean, I put him into the category of Gandhi or Muhammad or some other person they admire. I want you to understand, all of these answers are natural they are what men do when they are darkened in their understanding, when they are blind in their sin, when the light of God's grace has not shone in their hearts. This is how men think about Jesus. It is natural, but it's not innocent. It is natural, but it's blasphemous. And it will damn you. 
if these are your views of Jesus, you are not on your way to heaven. You're on your way to hell. And the same tempter in the garden that Jesus met with is the one whispering in your ear. He is the one at work in the mind of the natural man. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. What I'm saying to you is this, the only Jesus who can deliver sinners is the Jesus who really exists. And the Jesus who really exists is the Jesus we can only know from the Bible. That's the Jesus who really exists. So don't accept another Jesus. Paul warned the Corinthians about this. 2 Corinthians 11.4 says, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He is rebuking a church for being too open. On this Christmas morning, let us proclaim without fear, without shame. If you get Jesus wrong, you get nothing else right. If you get Jesus wrong, you get nothing else right. So you have the greatest question the world will ever hear. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 13. Then you have the natural answers. The most popular answers you get from unbelievers. And there are a variety of categories found here. Religious ones, mystical ones, superstitious ones, traditional ones. And just sort of the common everyday powerful people answers. Maybe he's one of the prophets. But what they all have in common is they're all wrong. Third thing I want you to see in the text, verse 15, the most important question the disciple will ever answer. Verse 15, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Did you know this is a question we have to answer? Who do we say that he is? And the reason why I say this is the most important question for the disciple is either this will confirm a faith that is genuine or perhaps it will expose a faith that isn't. Not everyone who claims to be a disciple of Jesus is a disciple of Jesus. Which is why you and I have to answer this also. And by the way, we never stop answering it. This is the question we get up with every morning. Who do we really believe Jesus of Nazareth was and is? Do we know Him? Do we know Him? Do we love Him? Do we really believe in Him? It doesn't matter what your location is. You sit in a faithful church this morning. That doesn't make you a Christian. You left a home of believers to come here for worship. You'll go back to that home. And today the name of Jesus will be on the lips of those who live in your home. That doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you were born into a Christian family and are surrounded by believers, it doesn't make you a believer. 
What do you say about Jesus? You. I mean, just circle yourself. What do you say about him? From your own heart. From your own heart. As a matter of conviction. And what you say, do you really believe it? You know, we've heard a lot in the last five years at least, maybe longer, about deconstruction. You see some famous person, usually their fame has been achieved in the evangelical world, and now they are leaving the faith. They are deconstructing. Yes, I used to be an evangelical Christian. I used to believe those things, but, but I'm now happier. I'm free because I've left behind things that I don't believe anymore. Post-Christian. Well, the Bible has a word for those folks. The Bible calls them apostates. They've been moved away from the truth. They've abandoned the faith. And the Bible says that they go out like they do. They leave us like they do because they were never of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So that whenever you find an apostate, a deconstructionist, a post-Christian, what you're meeting with is a revelation of what was real all along. First John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, listen, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. How does deconstruction happen? I'll tell you how it happens. It happens because people are existing in an environment where they're confessing something they don't really believe. The confession is sound, but they are not sound. The words are right, but they are not right. They know the truth, but they don't believe the truth. Never forget that when Jesus asked his disciples this question, but who do you say that I am? There was a Judas among them, identified with them. And by the way, dear ones, it was not obvious that Judas was Judas. It wasn't. He was the treasurer. They trusted him with the purse that he was stealing out of. He was a thief. But in addition, at the Last Supper, when the Lord said, one of you is going to betray me, it wasn't like every eye in the room went to Judas. There he is. We know who you're talking about, Lord. No, it wasn't like that at all. They didn't have a clue who Jesus was talking about. In fact, some of them were humble enough to say, it's not me, is it? Is it me? So this is the most important question for this room. Who do you say that he is? You. Not your neighbor, not your husband, not your wife, not your children, not your parents. Who do you say that he is? Brings to the fourth thing we see, the last thing. Verses 16 and 17, the supernatural answer. The supernatural answer that delivers the soul. There's a natural answer that dooms the soul. There's a supernatural answer that delivers the soul. And Simon Peter, thank God for, for Peter. 
gloriously a failure sometimes, but gloriously a success sometimes. And sometimes both in the same scene, as we'll see the week after next. And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Notice the elements of what comes out of Peter's mouth. First of all, his confession. The one right answer to the question, Who was, who is Jesus of Nazareth? He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Deliverer. He is the King. Everything in the Bible, Old Testament Scriptures prepared people of God to recognize in the Messiah when He would arrive, Jesus is Him. In fact, when Jesus says in verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man is Messianic language. I'm the Messiah, but what do people say about me? What do you say about me? Peter says, we agree with you. You're the Messiah. But he also says that Jesus is divine. He is God in human flesh. The eternal Son came to earth, God with us, Emmanuel. This is the mystery of the incarnation, that God took to Himself an additional nature, a sinless nature, to redeem sinners. You are the Son of God. That is the right confession. Is that your confession? Do you today confess that Jesus of Nazareth, the man who lived 2,000 years ago, born in Bethlehem, was known as a Nazarene, lived his life, died on a cross. Do you believe he was raised from the dead three days later? Do you believe that he was and is the Messiah, that he was and is the Son of God? If you do, understand there is no merit that you have achieved or accrued by that confession. Though we confess the truth, and though the confession is necessary to salvation, believe in your heart, confess that Jesus is the Son of God. We are saved as we believe and confess. This is true. But it's not like we earn salvation through that. Salvation is a gift. It's free. Undeserved. Because notice, Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You're blessed to say such a thing. Spiritually prosperous, spiritually rich, but also you've been graced, you see. This has been granted to you. You have received light. Your confession is not explained by you. But by God, we don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah because we're good people, smarter people. We were as blind as any sinner could be until God had mercy on us and opened our eyes. You understand that? You didn't come to believe in Jesus because you're smart. You came to believe in Jesus because God loved you and had mercy upon you. You're a blessed man, Peter. Because, here's the source of your confession. Here's how we explain it. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. 
How do you explain Peter's confession? Not by flesh and blood. Do you understand? Thank God for the means that he uses. Thank God for precious parents who teach their children the gospel from the day they were born, prayed for their salvation before they were born. I think often about Paul telling Timothy what a rich heritage he had in a mother and grandmother who were believers and had taught him the Word of God. These are precious things not to be taken lightly or for granted. But your belief in Jesus is not explained by the person who taught it to you. In fact, you can grow up in a home where you're taught it your whole life and not really believe it. Flesh and blood doesn't explain your faith. But God does. My Father has revealed this to you. I think it's so interesting that as Jesus expresses this, He refers to Simon as the son of Jonah. It is by nature that you're the son of Jonah, but it's by God's grace and power that you're now a child of God. Your natural condition can be explained by birth, but your faith in Jesus is only explained by the new birth. Regeneration preceded your faith. And if God had not opened your heart, you would have never believed, no matter who taught it to you. Judas had Jesus as his teacher. And he died a lost man. So this is how sinners are delivered. They hear the gospel. They hear the word of God. And in conjunction with this, God grants them eyes. Spiritual eyes. And they see Jesus as he really is. They're granted by God the capacity to see the biblical Jesus. Not the mystical Jesus. Not the traditional Jesus. Not the twisted scripture Jesus. The Jesus of the cults. Not the mere man Jesus. But the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. That Jesus. God opens their eyes to see that Jesus. The vision they have is not just intellectual assent. They are blessed to make their confession. They delight in this Jesus. They desire this Jesus. They pledge themselves to this Jesus. They become a follower of this Jesus. They love Him. desire to please Him with the whole of their life and for the rest of their lives. Not only is it true to say that believers confess what the world does not confess about Jesus, believers confess what the world cannot confess about Jesus. Only the grace of God produces believers. This is how you became a Christian, dear one. When you were faced with the greatest question the world would ever consider, and as you were faced this morning with the greatest question a disciple will ever consider, You're a blessed person because God has opened your heart and shined His light in to give you the knowledge of His glory in the face of His Son. I was thinking as we were singing one of the hymns this morning about God bringing us safely home. Are you aware of your sin battle? The Lord has saved you. If He has, if you've trusted in Him. Are you aware of a new struggle? Are you aware of the spiritual war you're in? Do you know you have an enemy? And you know know the flesh is still there? Do you know the battle you have with indwelling sin? How do you get safely home? 
in such a war zone, how do you survive? How does your faith survive? The glorious good news this morning is when the Lord took hold of your life, He took hold of you not for a day, not for a season, but for forever. He won't let you go. He has granted you something that is not able to be extinguished. Your faith is everlasting. In other words, we confess now, we confess what we cannot escape. You've heard the saying, I can't unsee what I've just seen. People usually say that in a negative context. I wish I could unsee that. Well, praise be to God, dear ones, we can't unsee what we have seen. Praise be to God, we cannot unsee what we have seen. So that our faith goes on forever. Because it was a gift from God. John Legg, writing about Polycarp. Polycarp lived A.D. 69 to 155. Very early in the history of the church. He says this, Polycarp, a leader of the early church in Smyrna, gave the memorable answer when commanded to curse the name of Jesus Christ and worship Caesar. Here's what Polycarp said, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? To the end, Polycarp disdained to defend himself before the mob. He was threatened with the wild beast and then with the fire, but he did not flinch. Once again, his answer was memorable as well as moving. You threaten me with fire that burns for an hour and in a little while is put out. For you do not know about the fire of the judgment to come and the fire of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why are you waiting? Bring what you will. And so they did. He was burned alive. The issues were clear to Polycarp and other Christians. It is better for you to enter into life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out, Mark 9.43. Immediately after Polycarp's martyrdom, the local church wrote a letter describing the event. So eager were they for a neighboring church to know of their leader's joyful and glorious end. To them and to the non-Christians around them, such faithfulness was the best possible testimony to the truth of the gospel. So I ask you, in a world that has all these perspectives about Jesus, most of the world today is celebrating someone they don't know. Most of the world is celebrating someone they don't understand. In a world where we could ask, what do people say about Him? The question for you is, what do you say about Him? What do you say? And what you say, does it come from your heart? Is it a matter of conviction? Is it supernatural? Did God grant you a faith that cannot be extinguished? So that even though you know a great wrestling with sin, on this side of eternity, you can't unsee what you have seen. And the Lord will see you safely home. The church would say, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this precious text. Thank you for your glorious Son. 
who is our Savior, our Lord, and our King, and we confess together that He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Thank You that You've opened our eyes and granted us sight that will never ever be taken from us. So that we will not go out, we will continue, because that's what people who are truly born again do. Lord, may you save this day and may you encourage your people, we ask in Jesus' name.